This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Krish Tawari, who is Professor and Division Director of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of California in Irvine. Krish, welcome. Thank you so much, Pedro. Really happy to be here. Well, Chris, this is a, a great opportunity and a, and a treat for us to speak uh, to you on a recent publication of the landmark trial, GOG-218, uh, recently published in Journal Clinical Oncology, the final overall survival of a randomized trial of bevacizumab for primary treatment of ovarian cancer. And uh, Chris, the, the, the first question I wanted to just uh, start with is put, put this study in perspective in terms of where we are with regards to clinical practice, and, and why, why is this trial important in our field? Yeah, thank you so much, Pedro. You know, this is the first of the um, anti-angiogenesis phase three randomized trials in ovarian cancer. We've now got nine of them. And what's interesting is, you know, we've studied anti-angiogenesis therapy in newly diagnosed disease, platinum-sensitive recurrence, and in the platinum-resistant recurrent populations. And every single one of these studies has met their primary endpoint, which has been PFS in um, almost all cases with the exception of GOG-213. These nine trials studied um, a total of five different anti-angiogenesis drugs with bevacizumab being studied in most of the studies. And as I said, GOG-218 was the first of these trials. It was um, the first one to design and the first one that reported. And with the June, two, June 2018 um, U.S. FDA frontline approval of concurrent um, chemotherapy plus bevacizumab followed by maintenance bevacizumab, which was based on this trial, this represents the very first new treatment indication for newly diagnosed disease in the U.S. in over two decades. So in that respect, it's a very important study. Yes, uh, quite an undertaking as well, uh, obviously many years involved in in the trial. So if you can talk to me a little bit about um, the details uh, as it pertains to the trial design, um, if you can focus on your inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, and, uh, and, and just talk to us, uh, particularly also um, I was interested in as to why patients with no gross residual disease after primary surgery were excluded. Okay, yeah, very, uh, this is uh, those, it's a very important question. So just, you know, the basic structure of the trial, it was um, a phase three randomized placebo-controlled multi-center, multi-institutional three-arm trial testing standard platinum and taxane-based chemotherapy for six cycles. Um, and compared to ARM2, which was standard chemotherapy plus concurrent bevacizumab, 15 milligrams per kilogram on a 21-day schedule, with the bevacizumab starting on cycle two. And then the third arm was standard chemotherapy plus concurrent and maintenance bevacizumab, where the bevacizumab was given for another 17 additional cycles. The key inclusion criteria um, included incompletely resected stage three and stage four disease, and I'll um, explain um, the rationale for that in a minute. But other important inclusion criteria were a GOG performance status score of zero, one, or two, and no history of clinically significant vascular events or evidence of intestinal obstruction. Now, as far as the issue with um, enrolling patients that had no gross residual disease after primary surgery, those patients, we didn't want them in the study. When Bob Berger designed this trial, a lot of the um, current thinking at that time, and it, and it holds now 
with subsequent clinical experience was that there needed to be a residual physical tumor burden that presumably produces VEGF, which was necessary to enable bevacizumab, which is an anti-VEGF scavenger, to exert its effect on the tumor microenvironment. And so we felt, um, again, for bevacizumab to work, there needs to be residual disease to produce the transcripts and ultimately the VEGF protein. I see. And, and uh, as it pertains to, just as a follow-up question to that, as it pertains to tumor size, there was not an upper limit where you were then subsequently excluded uh, on, on that gross residual? No, not in terms of tumor size, no. Okay. So the, the other- I mean, they just had to have visible disease. You know, they could be optimally cytoreduced, but there had to have been visible disease. So if they were optimal, it had to be visible disease under a centimeter. Okay. Now, one of the other things I noticed was that um, a number of patients had their serum and or the tumor specimen sequence for BRCA1 and 2, and that in addition, there was also an evaluation of homologous uh, recombination repair genes and testing for CD31 by immunohistochemistry. Um, Tell us a little bit about why you decided to incorporate each of these in the study. Yeah, so I think, you know... We know there's um, quite a few important clinical prognostic factors in this disease, age, performance status, FIGO stage. We also have um, some informative pathologic prognostic biomarkers such as grade and cell type. But we were not only, we were interested in studying molecular prognostic biomarkers, but we also wanted to determine if they had any predictive value in um, determining who would respond to bevacizumab. And so based on PFS data, we found that um, things like ascites, uh, CD31 immunostaining, even BRCA1, BRCA2, those um, tended to track with PFS. But for this paper in which we were looking at overall survival, it was very important for us to evaluate these molecular biomarkers and clinical biomarkers such as ascites to see if those results were sustained when looking at the survival endpoint. As it turned out, um, none of these um, biomarkers, BRCA1, BRCA2, or damaging mutations in homologous repair um, enzymes, none of them were predictive of bevacizumab activity, nor was CD31 immunostaining. However, um, I think uh, we did get some interesting results in that for the first time we were able to show in a large prospective study with over 1,000 specimens that BRCA1, BRCA2, and also HRD is prognostic. You know, We'd always known um, clinically and suspected that patients with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation tended to do well. They tended to respond to platinum. They tended to have um, platinum-sensitive disease recurrence. But we'd never really demonstrated that. And so I think um, something that's notable about Bob Berger's um, GOG218 study, and when it was all said and done with over 1,000 specimens, we were able to, for the first time, really demonstrate that BRCA1, BRCA2, and also HRD um, is prognostic. And I think that's important because, you know, the standard of care is anyone with ovarian cancer is advised to get um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing, but I think these um, results would also support that uh, of studying patients for um, HRD mutations in the front line as well. Yeah, I completely agree. That was a great contribution from that as well. So now um, the follow-up was, uh, I understand it was about 103 months. Um, can you tell us about the the primary results of the trial? Obviously, the, the question everyone was uh, awaiting, uh, what does Pepacizumab add? 
That's right. So the the results are um, negative. Um, as as you know, the um, primary results um, looking at OS were negative in that neither of the investigational arms, arm two with concurrent BEV or arm three with concurrent and maintenance BEV, neither of them significantly improved survival um, compared to control. Now, we had looked at OS previously, but we did not have the protocol-specified number of events, which were 375 deaths in the control arm until last June when we presented the final OS data at ASCO. But um, not only was OS not significantly improved in the intention to treat populations, but disease-specific survival, meaning patients who died specifically of ovarian cancer, there was not a signal indicating that BEV um, improved survival in those patients either. Survival was also not improved when we controlled for crossover to BEV at progression or among those patients who received bevacizumab in the second-line setting. So then is, is it fair to say when patients ask us uh, if there's any benefit to concurrent bevacizumab or just maintenance uh, bevacizumab for, for us to relate to them that there is at least no benefit in overall survival? That's, that's correct. There is a benefit in PFS, which is um, what Berger reported in 2010 at ASCO and then subsequently published um, the PFS endpoint in the New England Journal of Medicine the following year. So there is a benefit to PFS, but you're absolutely right. There's no OS benefit um, in the attention to treat population, nor in some of our exploratory analyses looking at disease-specific survival and crossover. Okay. And, and Chris, one of the things that I noted uh, was that the study uh, showed that in, in stage four disease, there, there seemed to be an improvement in overall survival for patients who receive maintenance therapy in comparison to the control group and the concurrent chemotherapy with bevacizumab group. Um, t tell us if, if what, what are your thoughts with regards to the reasons for, for this finding and, and the clinical implications? What do we do with this information? Yeah, so it's a great point, and I think it harkens back to a, a couple things. One is the pre-trial rationale to exclude patients with um, no visible disease. Uh, I think that in not only 218, but also, as you know, ICON-7 and other studies, bevacizumab seems to be more active with more advanced disease. Um, and this must, um, we believe this is due to higher levels of VEGF production. And presumably, of course, there are going to be a few stage four patients that may just have a pleural effusion and not necessarily have a high volume of disease. For the most part, um, in this trial, the stage four patients weren't those patients that just had positive pleural cytology. They really had um, truly more advanced tumor burdens. And so I think that it's interesting that both ICON-7 and um, in GOG-218, the stage four patients did um, obtain a median survival benefit with bevacizumab when it's used concurrent with chemotherapy and followed by maintenance therapy. And in fact, um, not only was the difference between the stage four patients in that arm significantly different compared to arm one and arm two, it was 42.8 months versus like 32 months in the control, but the use of bevacizumab in concurrent and maintenance therapy for these FIGO stage four patients transformed um, survival down to or up to what we were observing for the stage three patients. Again, this is all exploratory, um, 
so it wasn't a protocol-specified endpoint, but the fact that it tracks with what was observed in ICON-7 with their stage 4 patients, at least that suggests to me that this it's a, it's a real observation. It's very interesting, and then we'll get back to that point as, uh, as we close our discussion. Um, tell us just briefly, with regards to the safety issues and the adverse events, obviously we're always concerned with uh, bevacizumab, and particularly in such a large study, what were some of the um, safety issues or adverse events that you encountered in this uh, particular study uh, pertaining generally to hypertension and, and proteinuria events? Yeah. So um, hypertension, about a quarter of the patients did have grade 3 or higher hypertension. Um, we've learned quite a bit about uh, managing hypertension, and um, patients haven't, didn't have to come off study for that. Um, you, know, it, you know, multiple agents, as you know, were used to... Um, treat hypertension, we typically max out on one class of antihypertensives before um, adding a second one. Um, we use calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. Uh, we also used um, ACE inhibitors. One uh, medication we didn't use to manage hypertension were diuretics, just in case some patients were having a tough time with the chemo. We didn't want to dehydrate them further if they were having significant nausea or emesis. But hypertension, 23%, grade 3 and above, all manageable. Proteinuria, um, 2% of the patients had grade 3 or above proteinuria. We didn't have any cases of nephrotic syndrome, and so um, we felt that that was a, a very tolerable um, level of adverse event. And then as far as intestinal wall disruption, again, it was under 5% for grade 2 and higher GI events. And I think we've learned quite a bit about the um, GI, -ish, GI um, wall disruption from this study and I think that, um, you know, in the beginning it was very common for, you know, many of the investigators to have had one or two cases in their practice where someone may have had a perforation. But now we know that um, patients with clinical signs or symptoms of small bowel obstruction or radio radiographic um, bindings of small bowel obstruction, air fluid levels, dilated small bowel, those are the patients we don't want to give bevacizumab to. Otherwise, it's been very safe. Okay. So one one um, question that I that I have as I look to the discussion of the of the manuscript and and certainly one question that perhaps extends beyond the time limit of, of the podcast, but I want to ask you anyway, given your your expertise uh, on the issue of assessment of the interventions in advanced ovarian cancer, um, is overall survival the best tool to determine the efficacy of intervention? or should it be disease-free survival? This is obviously particularly given the fact that patients now receive numerable range of treatments uh, at recurrence. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, um, or when this trial first reported the PFS data, it wasn't enough um, to get a label. Uh, there's um, the US FDA had um, concerns about PFS being a valid endpoint in this disease, but because um, ovarian cancer retains chemosensitivity for such um, an extended period of time compared to many other cancers, I think the um, line of thinking at the FDA is that PFS is of value. OS um, is still a very important standard, and we got to recognize that OS ha we've hit OS several times in ovarian cancer. We hit it in GOG-111 with the combination of cisplatin plus paclitaxel. We um, hit OS in three of the phase three randomized intravenous intraperitoneal studies, 104, 114, and 172, all run by the GOG. We've hit OS in the Netherlands HIPEC study, 
Um, the Japanese hit OS in their dose-dense weekly paclitaxel. So it appears in some populations of patients, OS can be obtained. But for the most part, with the widespread availability and trials being um, done, especially in the recurrent setting with these novel agents and our inability to control for crossover in most cases and also our inability to control post-progression therapy, I think PFS is valid. Um, you know, patients with ovarian cancer tend to get many, many lines of therapy, and therefore the OS impact rendered from frontline novel drugs may be muted and not detectable. Uh, the FDA has um, recently put out um, some uh, indication that they will accept OS, especially when it is combined with other informative parameters such as quality of life or even um, noteworthy translational correlates. So I think we should always strive for OS, um, but uh, significant improvements in PFS um, not only are clinically meaningful, but they may ultimately translate to an OS benefit with um, further follow-up. A perfect case in point is Solo One. Uh, it, it seems like there should be many patients on maintenance elaborate who are probably going to be um, experiencing a survival benefit, and many that may even be cured. Completely, completely agree. Yes, and uh, Chris, you you alert us to a number of very important um, ongoing trials now in your discussion. Uh, there's one called the Prima trial. The other one is the Velia trial, and the other one is the Paola trial. Can you briefly describe to us what what's going on with those uh, studies? Yeah. Um, so all three of these are uh, frontline phase three randomized trials. Um, importantly, they're anticipated to report at the September 2019 ESMO meeting in Barcelona. So that's um, going to be exciting. Prima is a frontline maintenance study with um, the PARP inhibitor niraparib. Um, it's different than SOLA1 because um, it's looking at all comers, uh, regardless of mutation status, but the primary um, population uh, for the primary endpoint is the HRD population. Today there was a press release issued by GSK, um, uh, which uh, merged with Tesaro, indicating that this trial met its primary endpoint. So that's very exciting, and I think that... Um, details will be at ESMO. Uh, Belia is a GOG partner study or a GOG foundation study. It's known as 3005. And this is looking at a, um, a PARP inhibitor that doesn't have a label yet um, for clinical practice. It's a PARP inhibitor called Viliparib. And this will give us information as to the efficacy and tolerability of combining this PARP inhibitor with frontline chemotherapy in women with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer. So that's um, hopefully going to report at ESMO. And then finally, Paola 1 is um, a trial looking at combined anti-angiogenesis therapy, bevacizumab with maintenance elaparib, and um, we hope um, to get uh, some clinically useful and relevant information from this study also at ESMO. So very exciting um, times. Absolutely, yes. Uh, looking forward to, to those results. Um, now, uh, Chris, just in closing, uh, obviously it's always a great opportunity to hear from, from an expert in the field and what happens in their own practice. Uh, could you share with us in your own practice today um, how do you use bevacizumab in, in the upfront setting? Is there any patient population? And going back to that, that stage four group of patients, um, tell us how do you manage uh, the use of this, uh, of this uh, drug in, in your patients? Yeah. Um, I'll just, um, before I um, back up and just talk to you about my practice really quick, quick, briefly, 
I do want to say, I mean, the stage four data is important, but I use it in all comers. Um, so what I do is I use a lot of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I'd say 75% of my pra- uh, ovarian cancer practice, I'm giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I give it without bevacizumab. Um, it, it would be off-label to use it with um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and plus Given the fact that these patients are likely going to surgery, I don't want to deal with bleeding issues. So I use platinum and carbotaxol um, in 75% of my patients um, and then do interval cytoreduction. Amongst the 25% that I do upfront surgery, I'll um, most likely first do laparoscopic evaluation um, to be sure that I can um, uh, optimally debulk the patients and ideally render them uh, with no gross residual. Once surgery is done, whether it's an interval cytoreduction or a primary debulking, I then um, initiate chemotherapy, and with the second cycle after surgery, I add bevacizumab um, according to the 218 um, dose and schedule, 15 mg per kilogram every 21 days. During this time, I get the patients evaluated for germline mutations in BRCA1 or 2. If germline testing is negative, I do somatic testing. If somatic or germline are positive, then when chemotherapy is completed, I switch maintenance to Olaparib um, for two years. And then if the um, germline and somatic is negative, um, I continue the bevacizumab for um, another 17 cycles. I think um, an important observation is, you know, in the BEV studies, when you turn off the bevacizumab, the curves come together. In SOLO1, um, Olaparib was given for two years, but even when the laparib is discontinued, the curves remain separated. So in my practice, if they have a germline or a somatic mutation for BRCA1 or 2, I'll um, give them maintenance laparib for two years. Um, otherwise, I use bevacizumab, regardless of whether they have stage 4 disease or stage 3. Okay. Well, Chris, has been really a, a pleasure speaking with you about this really important topic. Any uh, closing uh, summary statements you would like to make? Yeah. Um, you know, we've been... Um, very interested in this study for a long time, and I think that this paper um, provides important concluding information on what, you know, many of us consider a pivotal trial in newly diagnosed ovarian cancer. Um, there was no survival advantage observed with bevacizumab in the intention to treat population, but our exploratory analyses suggest that those with FIGO stage 4 disease who receive concurrent and maintenance BEV may experience a significant gain in uh, median survival. And then, of course, the prognostic relevance of both BRCA1 and 2 mutations as well as HRD mutations were clearly demonstrated in the study. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. Truly appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Pedro. Really appreciate um, you reaching out.